Welcome to Reading Aloud. Today, I'm reading this. The Satanic Witch by Anton Sazandor. Sazandor. Sazandor? Zandor LeVay. That's right. I love how people are incapable of saying his middle name. It's just like a big beehive in their mouth for a good, you know, four count. All right. Well, we're going to have a fun time. <laughs> a fun time reading what is essentially stereo instructions for the human psyche. That's really kind of what this is, right? It's like you just got a new uh, Asian off-brand VCR that you're trying to learn how to properly use. In this particular case, your body and psyche is the Asian VCR because they do it best. And uh, you just don't understand the manual at all. Or it's in a language that you don't read. Well, I'm here to read it for you. You'll understand it just as clearly, <laughs> but it won't be you reading. Um, Dallas, Aden, my man, we've got a show coming out. Fuck you. Yeah. Nefarious Epic, Peanut Butter Toast. How you doing? Wes Vanderpool. How you doing, man? Good to see you. Amber, how are you? CN Doll. What up? Uh, Svan Adder, <laughs> the Dapper Devil, M. Ashworth, Oma, and Blood Raven. Thank you guys for joining in the chat. And for anyone uh, who wants to jump in the chat, throw in conversations, random comments, tell me how much I look like an old-timey Western bank teller, because that's kind of how I feel right now. My wife said in order to properly be the old-timey Western bank teller, I need a larger handlebar. So I gotta, I gotta work on that a little bit. Let's see what we can do by the end of the show. I'll just like squeeze real hard and it'll grow out. Um, my pentagram pin is crooked. You know what? This is going to have to do, man. <laughs> Thanks for looking out. Uh, yeah, well, Wikipedia would be the one place. YouTube would be the other. And like this show. It's on YouTube. Thank you all for joining me. Okay, so like I said, we're going to be reading part two of the Satanic Witch. We left off in chapter two. Knowing Yourself and Others, right before we uh, jumped right into alcohol and drug use. So that'll be fun, because <laughs> I don't know anyone who enjoys those. Uh, what I did last time was try to go through an entire chapter and then stop and have a short, brief conversation about it or share thoughts. In this particular case, I'm just going to do it section by section. It makes it a little bit easier for me, and then if there's any errors, I can just stop and, and try to correct them really quick. Hi, Stormy. How you doing? Um... So, if that sounds good to y'all, then uh, maybe I'll just dive in and we can do it. Yeah? No? Maybe? Uh, what I like to try to do, let me give it a quick behind the scenes. Rather than having it like top down north and south, I like it to go in line with my chest right here. The curvature of your body. So, that might be what you're looking at. Let's do this. I actually have an appointment to get real prescription ones instead of like store-bought reader glasses. So they'll look better and perhaps I'll be able to read easier. We'll find out. Let's start with drugs and alcohol use. Um, and let me know your guys' thoughts. Do you imbibe in one or the other or both? <laughs> have you historically fallen victim to compulsion uh, with either or both? I think it's interesting. And I think honesty is the only way that we're going to be able to honestly overcome any challenges that we uh, encounter in life. 
So being honest with yourself is probably the most important. Uh, yeah, exactly, Nefarious. Exactly. Uh, Blood Raven. Anton LaVey was kind of straight edge, it felt like, at times. Well, he drank. He enjoyed a drink. Um, his reaction seemed to be much of the... Um, an overreaction of the time. It was the hippie movement. And so he saw the the kids, um, the boomers, the now okay boomers. He saw all the kids going crazy, um, and he was reacting to that. And so I think a lot of this we have to sort of take in the time it was written. Most of it will carry on through without any issue. But sometimes you have to kind of take a step back a little bit. Uh, you're listed as a tool because you are a tool, my friend. <laughs> you're an admin tool. All right, here we go. We're, we're going to start. <clears throat> Chapter 2, Knowing Yourself and Others, the section, Alcohol and Drug Use. Where booze is concerned, 8 to 10s consume the most and keep the bars in business. 11 to 12s like it, but most can take it or leave it. 1 and 2 types are most likely to abstain from alcohol or only drink for professional reasons. However, the majority of alcoholics fall into the 8 to 1 grouping. Threes are prone to drugs, and the biggest percentage of drug abusers are the three and four o'clock types, just as the biggest lushes are the first mentioned eight to tens. Interestingly enough, if and when a four o'clock drinks, it will be cheap wine because of its poetic connotations. If the ten o'clock feels daring, he'll puff a little marijuana because, being a basically social type, he will choose a social drug. If bourbon distilleries had to de depend on 4 o'clocks and LSD pushers had to survive on 10 o'clocks, they would both go broke overnight. The folks at the bottom of the clock can take it, but once having taken, find it hard to leave, where alcohol is concerned. In these most easygoing and steady types, a few drinks will trigger an oft-times welcome loss of inhibitions more readily than with any other category. These are the normally consistent and dependable types, who have one drink too many and wind up getting in a fight, taking their clothes off or wetting their pants. The most important rule to remember concerning alcohol is that whatever form it is taken, it will have the effect of bringing the qualities of the demonic to the surface. Thus, a normally jolly nine o'clock, when drunk, will become a morose, dour, and cynical person. The dry, technical three o'clock will turn into a sort of arrested development, life of the party, who might even sing a ribald song he learned in high school. The strong assertive 12 o'clock will become sentimental, nostalgic, maudlin, over youthful errors and lost romance, and might even cry in his good bonded whiskey. The 5 o'clock band clerk will relive the beach and at Anzio, and the 8 o'clock, who is usually bouncing around like a rubber ball, will be found in a darkened corner, morosely serious over what he feels is his lack of accomplishment and how people don't know what he's going through. When that old-time fundamentalist coined the term demon rum, he never knew how right he was. I like that. So just as a reminder for those of you who may not uh, recall where we left off, we're talking about LeVay's synthes um, personality synthesizer clock. And you can see it on the inner flap. This entire chapter is just about different behaviors and how different positions on the clock uh, enact those behaviors and why. And so that's why it's referencing drugs and alcohol 
per the clock references. Um, all right, let's see. Christian, good to see you, man. It's been a while. Uh, let's see. In your lesser magic practice, you've gotten a lot of use out of combining the synthesizer clock and the Enneagram. I don't, I need to phonetically spell that thing out because <laughs> I think I spelled it, said it wrong. Um, sociologist the other day, I wanted to run away. Yeah. Yeah. How fun is it overanalyzing at a party? You're supposed to be having fun. Forget, forget the, 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 being present, I think, is the most important. Stop being so technical and thinking about everything. That's my problem, because I think all the time. Nothing fancy, mostly Elmer Fudd, but, but I think all the time. A lot of Elmer Fudd thoughts. Uh, they didn't even know who Aleister Crowley was. Well, good on them, I'd say. <laughs> Wildly overrated, that guy. Professions and occupations. Persons on the left side of the clock from 6 to 12 are social types. Those on the opposite side are non-social by nature. Therefore, positions in which other people are involved as an essential part of the occupation are held by 6 to 12s. Technical, intellectual, and clinical roles are held by 12s to 6s. Personality-wise, the clock can be divided down the center with heart people on the left and head people on the right. Of course, the same kind of job may be held by any of the different types on the clock. What we are concerned with, though, is the incidence of certain type persons for certain occupations, and how a person who is a failure at his job is often in a profession totally alien to his typing. An example of this is the 330 salesman who dreads meeting people and secretly hopes the sale doesn't go through after subtly criticizing his product to the customer in the first place. His wrinkles suit, uh, his wrinkled suit looks like and is the most unimportant thing in his wardrobe, and his dull brown shoes have never been polished. He is a man who should be working in an electronic plant, soldering resistors, so he can go home each night and do some more writing on his play, which has a great deal of social comment, or at least go down to the coffee house and talk about his play. Of course, the successful extreme of this type is likely to be a successful writer of avant-garde plays. There can be many subcategories within the same profession. In medicine, for example, psychiatrists will fall into the two to four group, hospital administrators at five or six, lab technicians at three to five, and surgeons one to three, the kind the little eight o'clock meatballs all want to marry. Nurses that care about their patients, sometimes too much, are six to eights, whereas the tough old birds who brook no nonsense are 11 to ones. The kindly old GPs and most pediatricians are 8 to 11s, and gynecologists are usually 8s. The 12 o'clock is represented in the graying at the temples, bedside manner physician who specializes in disease of the rich. Defense attorneys are usually 9 to 11s, while prosecuting attorneys are ideally 2 o'clocks. Most attorneys who become judges are 11 to 1 with the ideal combination of sympathy, analysis, and symbolic leadership at high noon. The lower one is on the circle. The more compatible with his own classification he is, e.g., six o'clocks get along with other six o'clocks. Very seldom, however, will a twelve o'clock be able to tolerate another twelve o'clock for any length of time. This is why a twelve o'clock leader may employ a six o'clock to act as a sounding board for others whom he wishes to influence. 
This is a common practice in planned political campaigns where the 12 o'clock candidate employs many 6 o'clock campaign managers knowing they will be ideally suited to move among the masses of potential constituents. A very important aspect to be considered is the natural acceptance of the 6 o'clock campaign manager by the potential 12 o'clock constituent who could easily be alienated from the 12 o'clock candidate should he meet him on a personal level. In short, the six o'clock will be accepted most universally as he presents no threat to anyone's ego. Therefore, he is indispensable to any 12 o'clock leader who wishes to reach the most people. Consequently, the best spokesmen for someone else are always those directly opposite on the clock. The best managers of others are always six and seven o'clocks. Fans fall into the five to nine grouping, naturally being the most responsive audiences. The best salespeople are eight to tens, providing there is self-gain involved as well as financial. Most blue-collar workers and laborers are also in the eight to ten category, with professional military men and the best career soldiers falling within the ten to twelve grouping. Policemen and firemen are nine to ones, with the majority of policemen ten to twelve. The authoritarian image of the policeman attracts a great many twelve o'clock types, but the majority are closer to ten o'clock. The military, like the medical profession, has its various in-group classifications. We can observe these variants in an occupation or profession that embraces several different skills within a single field. Music is a striking example of this. Fads for certain musical instruments will produce players and devotees from all categories on the clock, most of whom exhibit dubious degrees of ability. Usually, however, when they keep laughing long after you sit down at the piano, you give up and any career you might have envisioned. Assuming that not everyone can be a Paderewski, uh, Segovia, Menuhin, or Casals, we must consider the driving emotional force that produces great musicians. It has been said that the, a great musician must make love to his instrument, woo it like a mate, and bring out the best it has to offer. This is the secret of any great concert artist. The musical instrument is a substitute for the lust object. The demonic element of any musician will be exercised in this musical instrument. Small wonder professional musicians exert a strong appeal over women. They, the musicians, are already in love and present an attractive challenge. Here are the instruments which correspond to the numbers on our clock. One, French horn. Two, saxophone. Three, clarinet. Four, harp, guitar. Five, flute, dulcimer. Six, violin, viola, cello. Seven, oboe. Eight, piano. Nine, timpani. Ten, snare drum, tom-tom, etc. Eleven, trumpet. Twelve, organ, trombone, tuba. As you can see, the instruments are listed with the most assertive near the top and the most passive, fluidic, and pastoral near the bottom. Now, the choice of the musical instrument is much like the choice of a pet. When one has no other love, he will employ a representation of his demonic lair in the form of the musical instrument he will make love to. This will always take the form of the instrument opposite his position on the clock. If, however, he has his demonic element properly exercised in another manner, he will choose, as a sort of familiar, the instrument closest to himself on the clock. In this way, he is getting to the very core of his personality. An illustration of this entire concept is this. There are two excellent professional 
violinists. Violinist A is a bachelor, 12 o'clock, slim-hipped, broad-shouldered, uh, suave. In other words, a typical Hollywood stereotype of a gypsy who has a job serenading di uh, diners at the Bit of Transylvania, a restaurant with atmosphere. As Laszlo, for that is his name, lovingly caresses his fiddle's erogenous zones, the women present gaze longingly, their once hot stroganoff moldering cold in its plate. For heaven's sakes, complains Hubby, eat your dinner! The words die unheard, though, as all female eyes are on Laszlo, making love to his violin. Little does Laszlo need any of those women right now, as his heart is taken. Violinist B is George, an unassuming, rather short six o'clock with a friendly smile and diligent approach to his art. George is happily, happily married to a rather tweedy twelve o'clock, who sees it, he is well taken care of. He has a couple of young sons who are his great pride and holds a respectable position as concertmaster in a large symphony orchestra. He has his demonic element indulged, so his violin is his familiar, the real core of his personality. Occupationally speaking, the most retiring individuals are the academic researchers, critics, technicians, civil servant clerks, ivory tower professors, and collectors of welfare checks, who all fall in the three to five position. Most craftsmen who deal in delicate or intricate operations fall into the one to three grouping. However, we occasionally see the same phenomenon as pertains to the musician who is in love with his instrument. Typical of this is the round little eight o'clock inventor who is married to his laboratory. In painting and sculpting, we see this apparent demonic dichotomy quite frequently. In these cases, the situation is easy to spot because there's a visual evidence of it in the product of the artist. An interesting case which comes to mind is that of a nine o'clock man who is on the antithetical profession of electronics engineering, one usually occupied by three o'clocks. It turned out that the electronics work was the manifestation of his demonic self and despite the compulsion he felt towards this field, he half-heartedly undertook many sidelines, real estate sales, boat leasing, vending machines, etc., in addition to his cherished technical profession. His side activities were clearly more natural adjuncts of his basic type, but still he courted electronics, excelling brilliantly. After many years of pouring himself into his demonic pursuits, he started dating girls, and what was the means he used to meet his female companions? an electronically computerized dating service. In this way, he could maintain his electronic mistress, yet consort with other women with her approval, as she was instrumental in supplying him with his lovers. Needless to say, all the girls with whom the computer supplied him were three o'clocks. A good test for personality typing, if the individual who is your subject has a drawing ability, is this. Ask your subject to draw a picture of a woman, assuming your subject is a man. The result you will see will be the demonic layer of his personality, from which you may take your cue should you wish to bewitch him. Artists, sculptors of all types show their demonic side most readily. If some of you recall the pictures of girls you used to draw when you were in your teens, you'll remember how the girl on whom you drew your favorite hairstyle or eye makeup always looked as you would have liked to look, which is always like a girl opposite you on the clock. That's the end of that section. Wow. Okay. So like I said, stereo instructions. <laughs> really. Um, is this where you guys are usually lost? Uh, do you stop 
when you're trying to get through this chapter because it is so technical. Eight and tens do this. This profession does that. Um, or do you gloss over this part and you jump to different parts of the Satanic Witch? Uh, how many of you have actually read it, as I'm doing right now, cover to cover, and just flown through it? <laughs> or is this like a uh, you read it for a little while, put it down for a couple weeks, pick it up, read it a little while type thing? It's a little bit rough. And I got to say, it's a little rough for me to get through right now, too. I think it's probably because I know most of it already. And so reliving some of this stuff is like not very exciting, I guess is what it means. Um, reading along with you as you. Oh, nice. Yeah. Here's something that people love to love reading, but very few people love reading. You see the difference? I love the idea of reading. I don't actually love reading. That's the difference. I, th I find most people are like this, at least in my own anecdotal experience. If they have bookshelves, they have bookshelves full of books that they will one day get to. Very few have bookshelves full of books they've actually read. They just love the idea of being around books. Maybe they're bibliophiles, but they just don't like the act of reading very much. Even editors I know, not many of them really actually like to read because it's their profession. It's like the the um, uh, the old idea that, you know, a, a plumber's home, every faucet leaks. If you're doing it for your profession, you're less likely to be doing it for your, uh, you know, passive time. Uh, except for a den, apparently. <laughs> uh, Amber, you're listening. Good. It's really just this one that, that uh, this chapter, I think, that I struggle through because... It's just like da 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 in its pacing, and I don't know. When I when I read aloud, I like to dramatically read, and when it's like stereo instructions, there's nothing to really dramatically play off of. So we're gonna keep going. Don't worry. <laughs> you have an audiobook of this. Where did you get an audiobook of this? Wild. All right, people. Let's dive into sports, athletics, aches, and pains. Sports involving teamwork are played by those on the left side of the clock, except for boxers, who are usually around 11. Wrestlers, on the other hand, can be 12 o'clocks, as due to the nature of most present-day wrestling, both performers win, and at 12 o'clock cannot stand to lose. For this reason, the 12 o'clock, whom Kretschmer misleadingly called the athletic type, is the one least likely to engage in any sort of competitive sport. However, if the 12 o'clock can be the sole or stellar performer, he excels. Just as there are more 12 o'clock orchestra conductors than any other type, so you will find similarities in the sports and athletic world. All of the famous weightlifters, not the earlier mentioned 3 and 4 o'clock bodybuilders, were 12s. The Achilles heel, in the case of the 12 o'clock, is the lower spine, all those famous strongmen had to wear stomachers under their leopard-skin tunics to keep their sacroiliacs from acting up. The reason for this, and the reason most men in the 10 to 2 group have back problems, is because they were never meant to walk on two legs as well as the others. Their long torsos and short legs are not equipped for such trained animal shenanigans. The long-legged people at the bottom of the clock never had such problems, as their bodies are relatively small for the big legs they carry them. Their weak spot is usually the feet and ankles, especially in the five to sevens. Being like mermaids, 
dolphins or other unaccustomed to walking on their tail flippers, these people are great when it comes to wiggling, but keep the podiatrist in business. Six o'clocks are the most comfortable in water, and therefore often expert swimmers. Mountain climbers would be thought to be twelve o'clocks, but usually are intellectual twos and threes with a desire to leave the lower world behind and get into the rarefied air. The pioneering twelve o'clock must have an audience, and mountain climbing is usually too solitary for his ego needs. Explorations are also more of two or threes, who often limit their human companionship anyway. In sports, the ideal referee or coach is the six o'clock, who, like the twelve o'clock judge, has the emotional analytical balance needed, but must give the actual show to others. The audience will watch the orchestra conductor, but seldom do sports spectators get worked up over the referee. Most referees and coaches manifest their demonic lair in the participants of the sport. Baseball players are usually 9 to 11s, who can keep their weight down. Football players range all the way from 8 to 11, depending on the position they play. Always remember, the further down on the clock, the better the runner, as the legs are longer. In soccer, the same grouping as with football holds true. From 1 to 3, we find tennis and handball players and pole vaulters, flying broad jumpers, trampoline, track runners, and surprisingly enough, basketball players. All threes and fours, auto racers fall into different groups. Sports car racers are usually two o'clocks, while stock car, rod, and street racers are ten and elevens. The big Indianapolis jobs are usually driven by elevens, and naturally, where nobody else is in the race, like a salt-flat trial of a specifically built car, as you might expect, it'll probably be driven by a twelve. Horse race jockeys are usually scaled down one o'clocks, and a wondrous example of the horse being their familiar rather than their demonic element. Usually, jockeys' demonic elements come out in the choice of a rather large overweight blonde, seven o'clock floozy. We will leave fad sports like miniature golf, now full-sized, water skiing, go-karting, and hula-hooping with the advice that, like musical instruments, in these fads only those who excel can give us an accurate personality typing. Alright. You know, Kinkies would be funny. Uh, but robotic voice. Oh, nice. Thanks. I could see, uh, yeah, because like on, uh, I don't, I'm sure Android phones have it too, but I know on um, Apple phones you can have uh, Siri dictate whatever's on the screen. So if you have an audiobook, I'm sorry, if you have a traditional uh, like ebook, it will read it for you in like Siri voice. I've never played with it, but. I feel like that would be kind of annoying and robotic, too. Yeah. I bet there's someone that gets off on that, though. They, like, uh, pull up a, a, a dirty magazine or something and just, like, have Siri recite it while they just <laughs> take themselves to their happy place. I bet some of you perverts do that. There's someone out there. All right. <laughs> Let's move on. Are you passive or dominant? By nature. By now, you've probably had a pretty good idea of your position on the levee perthes. Per <clears throat> I'm going to try that again. Are you passive or dominant by nature? By now, you probably have a pretty good idea of your position on the levee personality synthesizer. Now, let's consider your relative position as a sorceress. When assuming the role of witch, is it important to remember that you are acting in an ultimately dominant capacity 
even though you are passive by nature. Every woman is essentially passive, but only insofar as her biological functions are concerned. Many women, and especially those who are inclined to be predators, are decidedly masculine in their drives. The biggest threat to any man is that which attacks his ego in a feminine form. The most aggressive male will be a willing slave, so long as his ultimate male ego is allowed to remain intact. Once a man has been charmed by a witch, he should be unable to resist whatever her wishes might be. The more sexually secure a man is, the less sexually aggressive he is likely to be. This is a rule all witches must learn well. One of the first signs of a need to be dominated by a woman shows up in the overly aggressive male, sexually speaking. We can liken this to the mistaken recognition of the sadist and the masochist. It would be assumed that the sadist would be the man who goes about insulting and baiting others, while the masochist quietly sits back without offending anyone. Actually, the person who torments others at the drop of a hat is the masochist, because he secretly wishes to be beaten for his rude and offensive behavior and does what he can to engender such retribution. Such is the overly aggressive male who paws every woman he comes near and could vulgarly be described as an ass-grabber. The type of man seldom gets his comeuppance at the hands of a real witch, because women instinctively think of him as a dominant and aggressive type, when actually he is crying out to be mastered. His aggressive behavior is more a challenge to fight than to make love, and we see his type chewed up the most in the animal kingdom where the shots are called with more accuracy. If you want a man you can master easily, this is an ideal type to stalk, as he will fall right into your hands without you even trying. All that needs to be done is to act as brash and insulting as possible, and he will fall helplessly in love with you. If, however, you succumb to his first advances and do not symbolically slap his face, which is what he wants, he will have had the unrewarding satisfaction of defiling another stupid broad, thus sustaining his disappointment in women and frustrating his search for a woman he can respect. What he really means when he refers to a woman he can respect is a woman who's tougher than he is. If you are in an outly... If you are an outwardly dominant type of woman, you are probably used to being approached by this type and wonder why that just when you think you have found a real dominant male who can make you feel like a helpless creature, he turns out to be another little boy who clutches at you like his nursemaid. The submissive type of woman is never too disappointed by his type because she usually gives in to him before he has a chance to show his true colors. Neither will she ever reap any rewards from him, though, as he can feel no respect for his submissive partner. For those of you who are passive type witches, it is important that you hold off a bit just to see how really dominant he is. If he shows interest in you and tries to put the make on you and you refuse, if he is truly dominant by nature and sure of himself, he will move on to something else whom he feels is mutually interested and thereby indulge himself in a most selfish manner. This is the man worth setting your spell for, as he is truly independent and will complete your passive nature. Then. It is your turn to act as the aggressor and, as an afterthought, agree to accept his advances. You have made the important submissive move that gratifies his dominant nature, yet genuinely not allowed him to think you are a pushover. If, however, the man you have thought to be dominant becomes more frantic after you have rejected his advances, forget it. 
you will wind up with a wailing suitor who will stifle your chances to find the man you really need. The sexually over-aggressive man can be collected easily by the nature, uh, naturally dominant woman, who can accumulate an entire slave camp simply by allowing herself to appear on the scene wearing the accoutrements of the pushover as bait. Many successful career witches have acquired their male adjuncts in this very manner. This is why many of the best positions in sales and executive managership are held by such ass-grabbers whose sexual combativeness is sublimated in the business world. I would like to know if any of you have experienced contrary to this, because all of this is very specific. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, of course, there's always going to be anecdotal instances over a broad understanding of things. Um, there's always going to be an exception of the rule. But it seems to be spot on in my experience. So I would like to know. Um, all right, so let's see. In your opinion, I think we had it right when we came to the sex drives between humans. You think the satanic warlock really describes how to use and harness the powers within. All right. I always heard mystery and self was in... Oh, I don't know about that. All right, so uh, any of the admins can approve a comment that has been held for moderation. I think only admins see that it's held for moderation. So if you have a little tool next to your name, feel free to show or hide comments that pop up. I'm usually fine with whatever, unless it's openly insulting someone else. Um, yeah, I, the thing is, with dominance uh, and passiveness, it does really seem like if you follow the generic idea of the clock in your de demonic self, you're going to, depending on how honest you are with yourself, as an addendum there, uh, you're going to find that pretty much everything you're saying is right on. At least I have. And I think this goes beyond, like, this doesn't matter what um, gender you identify with. It doesn't matter uh, who you sexually are attracted to. It's, it's kind of across the board human nature type stuff. And that's why I think as a man, I find so much value in this particular book is because I don't see it as a witch's volume. I see it as an exploration of lesser magic. And I use that every goddamn day. So why would I not want to understand this stuff, you know? I don't know. I think the man who ignores this volume simply because it says witch shouldn't read it and should just continue being the rube. <laughs> because that's the man who ignores it. Um... All right, take care, Wes. Uh, how people work in relation to each other. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, let's continue going. The power of certain names. Understand, I'm going to be going through laundry lists of names in this section. So prepare yourself. The power of certain names. It has long been considered de rigueur that witches have magical names. The reason for this are varied. Obviously, many witches do not want their true identities known. So a secret name used only in the company of 
other witches often ensures anonymity, lest one of the lesser discreet witches in the coven spills the beans. We are not concerned in this book with the names of witches listed in Margaret Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe, as these names, Margaret, Bridget, Janet, Isabel, Catherine, Anne, etc., tell us nothing insofar as the influence of certain names is concerned. What testimony they present lies in the fact that any and all girls' names are found on the roster of the Inquisitors. During the days of the witch trials, it mattered not what your name was. Any name could be used as evidence of witchery, just as any freckle or blemish could be considered a witch's mark. Latter-day witches, however, seem to favor names with an exotic sound or demonic connotation, and you are more likely to encounter witches named Lilith, Hecate, Estart, Devilla, etc. than Nancy's or Linda's. My experience has shown me that the Nancy's and Linda's are often the most competent witches, though, and for very good reason. As I have previously stated, an most important thing to any man is ego. In dealing with a man in the top half of our clock, a witch must realize that she should do nothing to threaten this ego. In charming a man on the lower half of the clock, however, the witch must supply and literally be his ego. So here a strong name can be employed. Dominant men will seldom respond sexually to a strong female name, whereas passive males will excitedly tremble at the sound of one. Therefore, don't blame anyone but yourself if your name is Frankie or Rita or Casey or Hilda and all that you attract are fawning men. You can't place the blame on your parents' shoulders because even if they named you an ill-fitting name, there is nothing stopping you from either modifying or changing it. In order to present a consistent image, you must use a name which corresponds to the role you are playing. If, temporarily, you step out of your image, remember to modify your name accordingly. There are many stupid misconceptions under which inexperienced witches labor. For example, if your name is Roxanne and you are a ten o'clock witch, your name is fine, so long as you confine your bewitchments to men lower on the clock than yourself. Suppose you want to enchant a one o'clock man. You won't be easy in the first place, and you will have to do all you can to present yourself in the image of a seven o'clock woman. This means you must modify your appearance slightly, your voice, and your name. Yeah, you heard it right. Your name. But being a ten o'clock, your ego won't allow you to extract a simple old Anne from your existing name, thereby allowing the one o'clock man to feel on stage instead of yourself. No. You start thinking about names that are soft, less dominant, less ego-threatening, because someone has told you about this book. The next time you see your quarry, you decide to use your newfound formula and spring this sort of thing on him. You know, my name is Roxanne, but people that know me real well call me Kitten. Talk about out of the frying pan into the fire! You would have thought Kitten would be just the thing with its soft fur and purr, but still the hint at claws. But you missed the point completely. You had to think of something different. And by choosing something different, you're back with your big whip threatening his ego. Instead, you should have hit him with something like this. You know, my name is really Joanne, but it sounded so ordinary, I changed it. But sometimes, I really wonder if I did the right thing. There have been few studies on the power of certain given names over their owners, but the few researchers in the subject have turned up some startling but easily understood findings. What is equally as important as the commonness or 
unusualness of a name in witchery is its hardness or softness and unconscious semantic connotations. A name like Roxanne is a hard name because of the X sound and its semantic connotations to the word rocks. Therefore, it is an excellent name for a 12 o'clock witch, but totally antithetical for a 6. Consonants that constitute soft sounds where names are concerned are those that either project the tongue against the back of the teeth or pucker up the lips. Hard consonants are those that do not require that the mouth be closed or the tip of the tongue employed, but rather where the glottis does most of the work, as in K and a hard G sounds. A dominant name need not be one with a hard sound, but can be anything with an exotic nature. In other words, anything that will steal the show. Witches, who are playing the roles of four to eight types, would do well to avoid such names, but confine their originality to change from usual spellings rather than in the sound of the name. Example, Jane with a Y, Tammy with an I, etc. Here are some examples of ideal names for ten to two o'clock witches. Abra, Acacia, Asentha, Adelpha, Adora, Agave, Ada, Alana, Alan, Alexandra, Alexis, Allison, Allegra, Alpha, Allura, Alzena, Amber, Amina, Anatola, Arabella, Ardath, Argenta, Arachne, Atlanta, Ava, Azuri, Bathsheba, Brunhilda, Callista, Calypso, Carmen, Cassandra, Celeste, Chandra, Clorinda, Cosma, Crescent, Crystal, Dagmar, Dale, Darylas, Desiree, Davila, Dextra, Dorcas, Eartha, Electra, Eleanor, Elysia, Erica, Fabia, Fanchon, Faustina, Fleta, Fortuna, Freya, Gael, Galatea, Gemma, Gillian, Hecate, Hera, Hyptia, Ilka, Ilona, Imperia, Isis, Isolde, Jinx, Jocasta, Kama, Carla, Callie, Kelly, Kevin, Kim, Kimberly, Kirsten, Karma, Leonora, Leona, Leslie, Lexine, Libby, Lilith, Lucretia, Ludmia, Lunetta, Lysandra, Mab, Majesta, Marvella, Mercedes, Morgana, Nadja, Nike, Nix, Ona, Omphale, Ozora, Palmyra, Pandora, Perfidia, Perenna, Quila, Regina, Rexana, Rita, Rowena, Roxanne, Sabrina, Samantha, Satania, Scarlet, Selena, Shelley, Sherry, Sybil, Sydney, Sonia, Sorcha, Terry, Thalia, Theta, Tiberia, Titania, Tracy, Ultima, Ulrika, Urania, Valda, Valerie, Valkyrie, Vampira, Vanessa, Velvet, Veronica, Vicky, Volanta, Wallace, Winifred, Wayne, Win, Zolana, Yolanda, Zandra, Zara, Zena, Zora, Zyclonia. Naturally, if you want to get really obvious and out of man's name can be used, thinly disguised, such as Georgie, Frankie, Tommy, Bobby, Freddie, Billy, etc., it has long been a predilection of young girls to nickname their best friends with male variants of existing names. Example, Winifred equals Freddie rather than the more feminine Winnie.
In such cases where the root name was a man's, the nickname may be a reversion to the original male name as in many of those previously mentioned. This is nothing more than an unconscious manifestation of the demonic element. Ideal names for witches who are either within or playing the role of three to nine groupings are many. Here is a simple sample list with the borderline names marked with an asterisk that can be safely employed by women in any position of the clock. Adele, Alice, Alicia, Angeli, Angela, Anita, Anne, Annette, Arlene, Babbitt, Barbara, Beth, Beverly, Blanche, Betty, Bridget, Candy, Carol, Kathy, Charlene, Charlotte, Cheryl, Christine, Cindy, Claire, Clarice, Claudia, Cleo, Connie, Corinne, Cynthia, Darlene, Debbie, Denise, Diane, Dixie, Donna, Doris, Dorothy, Erlin, Eileen, Elaine, Erin, Eve, Evelyn, Francis, Georgina, Jerry, Gwen, Helen, Irene, Iris, Jackie, Jane, Jean, Jill, Joan, Joanne, Joyce, Judy, Julie, June, Karen, Lana, Lanny, Lorna, Linda, Liz, Lisa, Louis, Laura Lee, Louise, Lynn, Marjorie, Marilyn, Marla, Marlene, Marcia, Mary Lou, Melanie, Melissa, Maureen, Nancy, Pamela, Pat, Peggy, Phyllis, Roberta, Sandy, Sheena, Sheila, Shirley, Susan, Tammy, Vera, Verna, Vicky, Virginia, Vivian, Wanda, Wendy, and Yvonne. These names have been carefully chosen, all nuances of sound taken into consideration. Where a nickname variant of another name is shown, it is because the variant is more effective for our present purposes than the original name. In some instances, slight changes in a name, which will make it more conductive to another image, should be obvious. Example, Marge or Margie can admirably be strengthened by a change to Margaret or Margot. Softening or hardening the G makes a vast difference. Marge ends on a soft G. Margie has a soft G followed by the diminutive in the E sound, which adds a further note of helplessness to the already obvious unpretentiousness of the name. Such a name can never present an ego threat to a top-of-the-clock male. Margaret, however, has the hard G coming right down like a mallet in the center, followed with a hard-to-form ret. Oh, Mama. Mama. Ya action, Brunhilda. Um, I knew a woman uh, with the name Dorcas. It was a last name, not a first name, though. Um, beautiful woman. I mean, like, not just physically, but just personality-wise. Beautiful woman. Hard name. Hard name. Uh, yeah, what did you guys think? Uh, knowing that, I know some of you are using pseudonyms in some capacity here in the chat room. Some of you are using your real names. Um, when you think of your name, did you ever consider what the doctor is referencing in here? That your name, depending on how it sounds, is going to be attractive or ugly to different types of the clock. Before I read it here, I never even gave thought to it at all. And I think it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right, CM, for sure. All right, let's do some more names. His name. A lot can be told about a man by his name. 
It is amazing how few persons realize the impact a name can have on success or failure. Names are very much like looks. You can either have that W.C. Fields referred to as a euphonious appellation or an extremely ugly sounding name and make it work for you. If a name is nondescript, it has its advantages, but they lie principally in their element of camouflage or productive coloration. A man with a name like Gregory Belmont will often see the advantages in such a pleasant-sounding label, whereas a fellow named Phil Peckerdick might have a rough time of it if he allows himself to. The man who really must try harder to get ahead is the Bill Johnson, and those who do succeed are often the same man but D. William Johnson, or Will Desmond Johnson, or W. Desmond Johnson. Such a man would be likely to succeed simply because he could refrain, uh, remain aloof to occasional comments like, What's he trying to give it with that W. Desmond Johnson crap? For a witch bent on enchanting such a man, it would prove disastrous to come on with a name like Zorita. When dealing with a man with an unpretentious name, however, it is usually safe to have a more exotic name than his. Despite the connotations of certain surnames and their influence in a person's life, we will deal here primarily with first names and the diverse forms they take. In America, it is the rule to employ first names as an assumption of familiarity, so the form these names take gives much indication of the personality of their owners. Testimony on the importance of the first name in contemporary American culture can be illustrated by the anecdote about the man who went before the judge, petitioning that his name be changed. What is your present name? The judge asked. Joe Schitz, your honor, replied the applicant. Well, commented the judge, I can readily understand your desire to take another name. What is the new name you would like to assume? The man answered. Vincent Schitz, your honor? Astonished, the judge asked him why he wished to change his name in this manner. Well, your honor, the man asked, answered, every time I see anybody I know, they yell at me. Hey, Joe, what do you know? <laughs> to say that a man's name is an extension of his ego is true, and many men will employ a fancy name as a cover-up for lack of ability or achievement. Again, this is very much like good looks in a girl. If you have the knowledge of applied witchery, such beauty can be invaluable, but if you're laboring under misinformation, self-deceit, and exploitation, good looks can be a curse. There's nothing more ludicrous than the familiar, self-deluded, talentless, puff-up, 12 o'clock type man with a fancy name presiding from his regular bar stool at the corner saloon. Equally, as common in our society as the plodding five o'clock office clerk with a face no one would notice and a name to match, whose importance is such that the firm would practically collapse should he ever leave. A good test of a man's nature is whether he uses a nickname, and if so, the enforcing of such a nickname over another possible variant of the same root name. Example of this are the diversities of personality types bearing a name such as Charles, relative to whatever nickname. Example, Charlie. Charlie with a Y, Chuck, Chick, Chaz, or foreign variant that has been bestowed by parents. Example, Carl with a K, Carl with a C, Carlos, Carlo, Carell, etc. There are certain personality connotations in such nicknames and foreign variants that readily present, uh, present themselves to the aware observer. Charlie's are usually easygoing. Chuck's, more assertive. Chick's, inclined towards cockiness and Charles's reserved and sophisticated. 
Wills always have more depth than bills, and willies retain a boyishness while billies often go looking for trouble. Carls are usually serious, and Carloses are inclined to chase after anything in a skirt. Richardses are bookworms, whereas riches are usually a trifle conceited. Rickies are women chasers, and Rickses are often swaggering toughs. Dixes still predominate, however, and can be found hanging around, no matter what type you're dealing with. Tomses are usually quite stable, but Tommies are cut-ups. Bobses are equally bewitched, but Robbies fancy themselves as romantic leads, as do Stevies, Garys, Lances, Kirkses, and other assorted sex tags. Mike is an all-around guy, whereas Michael is serious and romantic. Foreigners who maintain their original name upon coming to America are much more headstrong and harder to bewitch than those who leap right into an Americanized variant of their original name. They are magically very sound in retaining their foreign names, as the element of intrigue is always present. The meaning of the word exotic, we mustn't forget, is simply foreign. Any witch who is an exotic type to start with can do well with a foreign variant of her name. A dashing-looking Frenchman named Laurent Gautier would have to be crazy to start calling himself Larry Walters, the angelicized, uh, anglic anglicized versions of his name. Likewise, a sexy witch from Ireland named Sheena would have rocks in her head if she took up its popular American variant, Jane. All right, names aside, we're about to get into some fun stuff. Law of Attraction of Opposites. This is one that um, I, I think is pervasive in, in modern adult culture. I first was presented with the idea in nursery rhymes um, uh, about the man who could eat no fat and the woman who could eat no lean. This opposites attract idea to a comical um, our culture takes it to a comical place, um, like an absurd place that I just have a hard time believing as reality. Um, when everything is so on the nose, it seems like a setup, in my opinion. So there's always something under the surface that, that I think is the predominant opposite attraction than just the big old fat lady and the tiny little thin dude. You know, just weird. Um, Monster House was another one that did that with the, the bad guy. Uh, you never noticed the similarity until you mentioned it? Yeah, man! <laughs> Seriously. It's bad. I now go by Bob Noggin Rod Strong. <laughs> Good name. Good name. All right, you're going to need a soft witch to pull you down. Or off. The Law of the Attraction of Opposites. It should be apparent by now that if you wish to enchant or charm a man, you must portray an image diametrically opposed, uh, diametrically opposite on the clock from him. The only exceptions to the law of the attraction of opposites are in cases where either one or both of the individuals involved has not yet matured sexually, even though they are fully equipped for sex physically. The natural process of selection arranges things so two persons of the identical physical types will not mate and wind up in a few generations with the same problem as over-pedigreed dogs. History, however, shows us many examples of improper breeding due to imposed standards of decorum or fashion. It's not that I'm against such things, 
Genetic control is not only a necessity, but an eventual certainty. But it won't come in the form of breeding with uh, breeding 12 o'clocks with other 12 o'clocks or 6 o'clocks with other 6 o'clocks. So if you're hung up on a cute 2 o'clock boy and you happen to be a 2 o'clock yourself, you want a big brother, not a lover, and you're probably very young. Wait a couple of years and your tastes will change. As obvious as it may seem, most people are still unaware of the attraction of opposites. In order to appear the opposite of your quarry, you must resort to many techniques. If you are naturally attracted to him, chances are good that your physical choice is close enough already. If you are bewitching for ulterior purposes, though, you will sometimes have to start modifying your appearance at bedrock, your physique. First, though, let's go back to the witch who is naturally attracted to a certain man. If she is a ten o'clock, being basically a woman, she will secretly want a man who is more dominant than herself, which only leaves eleven and twelve o'clock men. She will gravitate towards and therefore compel men to her who are lower down on the clock than herself, as they represent the demonic element within her. You see, she must fully bring out the demonic before she can recognize the core. So here's what happens. She constantly attracts four and five o'clock men with whom she toys, sometimes basking in the welcome attention and ego gratification they give, other times disdainfully avoiding them as pests. It is quite obvious that this type of woman has her share of her demonic counterparts in ready abundance. She then sees a man, one who is different from the others, and who doesn't seem to be the least bit interested in her. Naturally, this strength of independence brings out the little girl in her and places her in a role other than her usual one of control. What is she to do to get this man? First, she must give up any notion she may have of mastering him, as she has been able to do with all the rest. The minute she masters him, she will lose interest in him and be right back to where she started, searching for a man who can serve as the counterpart to the missing third ingredient of her personality. The strong man that lurks beneath both her female apparent layer and her four o'clock male demonic layer. Having realized that she has found a temporary master, and it can never be the other it can never be other than temporary, she must get every bit of mileage she can from such a relationship. The next thing she must do is look in the mirror, that old tool of the devil, and see what must be done to bring her physically closer to that place on the clock where his ideal mate would be, about five or six o'clock. As she stands, her legs are fairly slim, her hips trim, a long waist and well-developed breasts. She's never been any She's never had any trouble attracting men, but they never seem to be the ones she really wants. First of all, she'll have to fatten up in her hips and thighs, do something to make her posterior appear bigger and her breasts appear smaller. Heresy! Who in the world would ever have heard of purposely putting on weight in the butt? Well, I have, and I've seen the positive results that ensue. You say you can't gain weight in the legs, it all goes into your breasts first. Well, then... There are tricks that will make you look bigger below and smaller above, which are familiar to most women. The biggest problem you'll have with this advice is resolving yourself to try it. Women, especially in America, have been brainwashed for so long into thinking thin that it is unfathomable to them that there could be any sane men with other standards. Most women gain weight in the legs, hips, and thighs without too much trouble, but fight against such apparent lunacy. 
What is even worse is that witches of the very type that nature intended to be little on the chubby side fight constantly against their own success by adhering to this sort of foolishness. Thus, many seven and eight o'clock girls will diet themselves sick, wear figure-concealing clothes, and have convinced themselves that they really look best that way. When one woman wants to believe something, it takes little encouragement. And what these girls don't realize is that the only men that are going to be giving them the most encouragement, uh, encouragement in their new slim roles are the men who are closest to their own type on the clock. At least half the women who read this book will occupy positions on the clock which are conductive to weight gain. If you happen to be one of them, let me congratulate you. You need starve yourself no longer, unless you have a specific enchantment to perform that necessitates being a slim type. Take advantage of the bulges you have been so long in hating. The only men you'll attract are the ones you yourself would be interested in. And what's wrong with that? Don't ever forget that compulsion is but a short step from attraction. And whosoever you can attract, you can compel. Whatever physical type you naturally happen to be represents the demonic in some man. And if you adhere to your basic type and allow yourself to exploit all of its attributes and eccentricities, you will evolve into a complete witch. That is my favorite section, bar none. I hate the image that society demands women follow. And it has gone from, in my youth, to this thin, no-hip, no-bust form into nothing but ass. And I appreciate the ass. But I want more than just the ass. in all of that sentence and <laughs> all that it implies. Um, yeah, I mean, you gotta have, here's the worst part, is that if you are uncomfortable in your skin and you're constantly trying to alter and adjust the way you look, that resonates off of you. Most people can smell that. And so if you're not comfortable and confident in what you are, no one else is gonna be comfortable and confident in being with you. That is what I think is so powerful about this section. It's if you're not playing a role, i.e. trying to get someone that you normally wouldn't try to naturally attract, um, then embrace who and what you are. That doesn't mean be unhealthy and unsustainable in your diet, but just embrace what you look like. There ain't nothing wrong with it. I mean, look at this fucking nose, right? It's crazy. I look like a fucking weirdo, like a... a a, a doll from uh, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood <laughs> with like a pointy chin and a pointy nose. I mean, but I still make it work. If I can do it, anyone can do it. Um, I agree, Sian. If it's just ass, I'm not down. Uh, anything else? What do you guys have in here that speaks to you a lot? The opposite often works out better than the same type's person and experiencing the surprise of growing like someone I never thought would catch my eye. Yeah. Yeah. This is the biggest thing is being open. Not in the same way that um, most men and now social media influencers influence uh, men and women to unrealistic body types. Men are trained that they should only be attracted to that type. So women are brainwashed into trying to be that body type 
men are brainwashed into the fact that they should want that body type. And if they want anything else, then their bros are just going to make fun of them. <laughs> we Satanists should know better. We're about us, the individual. We shouldn't give a fuck what other people think. And being able to deprogram yourself through volumes like this is really important if you want to be any semblance of a powerful individual. Um, all right, I got to start. Give me a sec. We're an hour in. I'll give you one more hour, and that's it. All right. By his automobile, ye shall know him. Several years ago, Marshall McLuhan scratched the surface of a blatant facet of American culture, the automobile. The book was The Mechanical Bride, and the victim of his attack was a then-popular large automobile replete with obvious sexual symbols in the form of portholes and chrome phalli. Several years later, Vance Packard blew the lid off the entire subject with The Hidden Persuaders, followed by John Keats's The Insolent Chariots. While these two writers have given us superb commentary on the sexual symbolism of the automobile, there is still much to reveal concerning personality analysis based on the car one drives. American men are motivated into buying certain cars because of the need to extend their personalities into whatever meaningful accoutrements they require. Just how meaningful any accoutrement is has much to do with the witch's modus operandi. To the man who is on the top half of our clock, the automobile is most meaningful as a personality assertion, or so it would appear. This is often true, but we will see most apparent contradictions to such a generalization. And for good reason. The automobile is much like the example of the musical instrument mentioned earlier. It has been said to, either a wife, uh, to be either a wife or mistress, but the old analysis predicated upon wife sedan mistress convertible stopped far too short of our present mark. Let us consider the automobile to be a manifestation of either the demonic or the core. This base of operation will be necessary in order that you may define much about your quarry and what chances you will be of landing him. If a man's car is also his lust object or demonic, he will either be easy to woo away from his lacquer mistress or stick by her like fiberglass, depending on his position on the clock. If a man's demonic is catered to in another form, leave him with a car like himself. He may not need you at all, but at least you'd know you won't be competing with an automobile. Let's get started on the formula. The type of cars listed are those representative of the various numbers on our clock. Certain factors must be taken into consideration when observing an individual's car, such as, is it his own or loaned? Is it his choice or his wife's? Is it used for a specific purpose other than the personal transportation, camper, carry-all, pickup, good humor truck, road grader, etc.? Is it a holdover from a previous marriage or romance that is being kept for reasons of a convenience or financial nature? These are all questions that must be kept in mind. Then the typing can begin. One o'clock. Showy or extravagant cars of an expensive nature, often of foreign make. The type of car is more important than newness of car. Two o'clock. Quality sports cars of foreign make, but not ostentatious. Three o'clock. Imported economy cars, strictly transportation, older, lower-priced American cars. Four o'clock. 
imported economy cars, often beat up, older model, low-priced American cars. Five o'clock, low-priced newer American cars, foreign economy cars, American compacts. Six o'clock, American compacts and later model low-priced American cars. Seven o'clock, more elaborate American compacts, low to middle-priced American cars. Eight o'clock, newer American medium-priced cars or top-line compact. Nine o'clock, upper medium-priced American cars, usually newer models. Ten o'clock, larger American cars, large American sports cars, special or hot American compacts, all generally newer models. Eleven o'clock, large American cars, often older luxury models, older large luxury sports cars. Twelve o'clock, cars guaranteed to stand out, whether through size, luxury, etc., so long as there is a look of importance. Ten o'clock wash and polish their cars the most, fours the least. Eleven o'clock trade their cars in most often, fives keep them till they fall apart. Whenever you see a man driving a car that is antithetical to his type, you know the car represents his demonic side, his secret yearning. Examples of this are unkempt four o'clock hippies who own, for protest they think, a gleaming Rolls Royce. The rotund six o'clock office manager who drives an Eldorado while chewing on a big cigar, etc. Most important, though, seldom will you encounter this demonic transference going from top to bottom on the clock. Invariably, it will take its form in cases where the automobile demonic element is above the individual's position on the clock. The person occupying the higher position on the clock would not allow himself to be viewed by others while exercising his demonic. Should the demonic lower him in the eyes of others, the person on the lower half of the clock has nothing to lose by roaring around town in a fancy car. In addition to the choice of car, there is much revealed by the driver's habits of motorists. If the car is used as a demonic exercise, the driver can often become a demon on the highway, quite literally. When the car is used as an extension of the self in a demonic form, the driver can easily disregard all others on the road, and he is. Too busy carrying on his affair to be bothered with such trifles as speed limits. Everyone has seen the sallow-faced youth screeching down the freeway, weaving in and out of traffic, his right arm resting on the back of his seat while his while he steers with his left, huddling tight against the corner where the back of the driver's seat meets the door. I have heard highway patrolmen who spot such types refer to them as uh, refer to them derisively, but accurately as humping the steering wheel. Whatever you do, don't attempt to bewitch a man who is in love with his car. I have read advice in certain magazines and newspaper columns telling certain young girls that they should learn about his car and talk about it with him and let him know you take an interest in it, and everything will be all right. Well, let's explore that kind of advice once and for all. For any readers who have ever employed such tactics, know well the folly of them. At Best, you will be allowed to hang around as an extra accessory rather than a new interest, and wind up the best-dressed mag wheel on the block. Shit, I've got a Tesla. What does that say about me? Fuck. Uh, oh man, I love my car, but I loved my wife first, so I'm thinking. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you guys buy cars based on how you feel? Or do you buy cars based on technical things? Like, I've always, before my newest car, 
bought cars based on economy and not being too showy because I don't want to attract officers' attentions on the road, and I just want to have a reliable car that's not going to cost me a lot in the long run. Like, that's how I've always thought of cars. I'm not a car guy, per se. So what do you guys do? Do you look for, are you, do you always get a certain type? Like, I'm a sedan man. I'm a sedan man. Nothing dries up a pair of panties faster <laughs> than boldly pro proclaiming yourself as a sedan man. <laughs> God damn. Oh, you are. See ya. How interesting. <laughs> uh, you never bought a car? Gosh, you East Coasters. Oh, well, there you go. Function over form. That's how I see it, too. I also remember there was all these commercials when I was young and impressionable. Um, and this was the 80s. Where there's, uh, like, a, a car would drive up and there'd be two women standing, like, at a, outside of a hotel or on a busy street or something. And they're, like, conferring with each other. They see, like, this big monster truck. And they're like, oh, he's compensating for something. And then a guy drives up in, like, a, you know, a luxury sedan or just a basic sedan. And they're like, ooh, he's confident and, you know, whatever. He must have a huge cock. You know, whatever their <laughs> thought process was. And I think that made me a sedan man. It <laughs> It was the sex allure of TV uh, actresses, if you can call commercial actresses actresses, uh, not the economical side of things, I think. Maybe that's what it is. This is an ECI of mine. My sedan man is pure ECI. How fucked up is that? Ugh. All right. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, Utah's got to do that. You know, Utah has underground passageways uh in downtown salt lake owned and operated by the mormon church if they just put like trains in those and let the public have access sure there'd be urine and cum stains but ultimately it would benefit the entire city i think so maybe we should do that i don't know what do you think <laughs> um you loathe the master answer <laughs> all right let's do this we're talking about sleep sleep patterns, and other bedroom activities. Here's a test you can run using your friends as guinea pigs. You can always tell the mate who is most dominant by the side of the bed on which he or she sleeps. When two people are sleeping together, the dominant personality will always be on the right side of the bed, assuming both parties are lying on their backs. This, uh, thus, if the man is sleeping to the right of his mate, he will be the most dominant. If the woman is to the right of the man, she rules the roost. Often, such patterns start when couples are first married and never change, even though the personalities of the individuals have. At least you'll know the situation was when the initial attraction occurred. Males who sleep on the left side of the bed are more interested in oral sexual activity than men who sleep on the right of their partners. Likewise, witches who like oral sex will find their best partners sleeping to their left. Exceptions to these rules are cases necessitating one or the other person's convenience, such as nursing mothers, telephones, illnesses, etc. If you can find a man's fetish, you can spellbind him. Everyone has some sort of sexual fetish, even if it is not even known to the person himself. Unfortunately, too many people assume that a fetish must be an overtly sexual accoutrement, 
this is hardly the case, as the most compulsive fetishes are often those devices or situations that the average person would never consider to be in any way connected with sexual activity. We are all too familiar these days with the usual types of fetishes, such as long hair, high heels, garters, bondage, whipping, spanking, corsets, etc. A competent witch should not even consider such devices as acts as fetishes, however, as these represent the skeletons in far too many mental closets to be considered abnormal. The shadow used to claim he knew what evil lurks in the hearts of men, and you too must be aware of his knowledge if you are to become a witch. Some so-called fetishes are so universal it seems unfair to consider them anything other than human manifestations of behavior that has its parallels in all areas of the animal kingdom. Outside of the most common attraction factors of all, dominance to a passive person and receptivity to a dominant person, surest yardstick for fetishistic successes is a reaction to certain phases ideally, I'm sorry, idly dropped in conversation. If you are around a man long enough to get into conversation, key phrases may be injected that will make his eyes light up and invariably ask to hear more about it or hem and haw for a while, bringing the topic back later in the conversation. Key phrases stating the obvious are unnecessary, as in the case of comments about an article of clothing you are wearing at the time that could be construed as fetishistic. Certain so-called fetishes should be employed all the time a witch is on the job, or she cannot claim to be a witch in the truest sense. These obvious fetishes will be discussed in later chapters. Here is a list of fetish finders from which you may take your cues. Remember, once you have ascertained his fetish, drive it home by subtle references and idle comments. If you are clever, an opening in conversation can always be created to inject these fetish finders phrased in your own manner. Reference 2. How you won't take any guff from a man, boss, husband, other suitor. How you told somebody off. Shame at being chastised by boss. Being spanked as a child. Deserving a good spanking, either him or you. Hair-pulling match with another woman. A nasty dog you know who is free with his snout. How some stupid people think you're a lesbian. Your feet being all hot and sweaty not being able to bathe in several days. How some poor man you know is all excited over you. How it must be fun to be a man. How he'd make a very pretty girl. How shocked and embarrassed you were to see a man exposing himself. Accidentally exposing yourself. Accidentally wetting your pants. Cutting your hair if it's long, letting it grow, or getting a fall if it's too short. At least one of these topics is guaranteed to elicit an obvious response when subtly injected into the conversation. The ones that are meaningless to your quarry will be glossed over, in one ear and out the other, or rejected with a shrug or idle comment. It is when you see, and the eyes tell, him pick up the cue and feed it back with grim or nervously wrought interest that you know you've hit the mark. Once you know you have accurately reached that mark, you have a magical weapon at your disposal that will serve you if all else fails. You might even wind up having an actualized such fantasies if bewitching your quarry is important enough to you. It's the old question. Just how meaningful is it to gain what you want? You might be all wrong in every physical attribute for his taste, 
but if he is turned on by a girl who will dress as a nursemaid and will paddle his bottom while he is dressed as a little girl, and you act as though you love doing just that, you will walk away from any competition from other gals who only have their looks in proper position as his demonic counterpart to present. If you are too embarrassed to employ the aforementioned fetish finders in relationship to yourself, you can always inject them into conversation by way of a third person. The way the eyes light up when you tell them about what happened to your girlfriend or another woman at the office will let you know you're on the right track. There's always one thing wrong with using a third-person account when fetish-finding, and I've seen this problem occur many times over. You must remember that you're dealing with compulsions. When you are exploring fetishes, the fetish being just what the name implies, a device or situation that completely overwhelms any other more selective sexual stimuli. If you tell your quarry that your best friend is such a pretty girl, that when she removes her shoes while she is typing at the office, you have to open a window? Well, he's liable to get so horny that he can't think of anything. That all he can think about is meeting your friend with the smelly feet. I have found that women who seemingly have nothing to offer, yet bewitch a man away from a perplexed wife, who can't possibly understand what kind of power the other woman has over her husband, are very often utilizing fetishistic compulsion. A wise witch should know that if the fetish she is catering to is one that the man would not readily disclose to others, she has little fear of competition from others. Professional prostitutes are very careful about divulging good customers' sexual requests to other girls if the financial rewards for such services are substantial. And substantial they usually are, for fetishistic activity commands and gets the highest feeds in the profession. Every man is a fetishist. You simply have to discover his fetish. And that's the end of that chapter. We are now on chapter three, ESP, extrasensual projection. And I've got to take a second because my throat is parched. All right, people. What's your fetish? I don't fetish shame. I may not agree with the fetish like some of the ones listed. And they may like be repulsive to me but i don't finish in if you dig it you dig it it's cool whatever you know i like the feel of a stiff nipple on my palm i'm not talking about like grabbing or anything but like caressing a breast and having that stiff nipple and it's same it's like a texture thing i think it's the same thing with pubic hair like sliding your hand over the vulva and having the pubic hair rustle against the palm man mm, mm. Mm. Hot. I know some of yours. <laughs> uh, yeah, share them with other people if you want. You've already shared it on air before, some of them. So, <laughs> how is this different? <laughs> it's in the public record. Um, you know what I really like is the curve at the small of the back as the ass comes out. Because it like dents in, in most women, and then the ass just protrudes out, and then you have the beautiful top of the butt crack, and the, the, the butt cheeks themselves, and you have all these wonderful like avenues and crevices and stuff. Whew. Yeah, I think sensation is mine. Yeah, dude. Yeah, Dennis, I hate our current culture of shaving everything off. I hate it. 
it was exciting in the 2000, well, it was before that, it was exciting in 1995. No, wait, hold on. What was the year that Showgirls, remember the movie Showgirls came out? That was the first movie that I saw, um, I can't remember her name, but she was on Saved by the Bell, which I watched growing up, which is probably part of my obsession with it. Um, she had it all shaved. And that was the first time I ever saw it fully shaved. Up until then, it was all 70s bush that I was used to seeing. That, that was my life. And that was exciting because it was the first time. After that, and to this day, it is like everyone just takes everything away. And I hate it so much. What is wrong with people? God damn. Seriously. Um, also. Ooh, nipple play. Nice. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, I have no idea? Okay. <laughs> I know one of them because you've mentioned one of them. Um, okay, let's try to forget it. Let's try to forget it. Uh, you're Gen X, and yes, I recall the 90s, and I prefer girls. Yeah, yeah, dude. It's totally different. Totally different. It's shockingly different. All right. The smell, too. I'm going to get to this in a second here. <laughs> um, I don't like the smell of sterile things, like hospitals. That's what a perfectly shaved and waxy, shiny vagina is. It is a sterile hospital. How is that exciting? That's, I don't, and I'm not saying I want like funky smells or anything, but I want normal, natural human smells. Like that's, that's normal. Like your pubic hair traps that scent. And if I can smell you the next day on my facial hair, oh, <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. All right. I'm going to get off my fucking fetish soapbox. Chapter 3, ESP, Extrasensual Projection. In recent years, there has been growing inclination to interpret any human awareness that cannot be readily explained as ESP, or extrasensory perception. Of course, it is admitted in even the most polite circles that animals have this faculty. Rather than admit that animals have full use of one or more of these so-called five senses, they are credited with a sixth sense, which we call ESP, but I believe that the majority of things that are attributed to ESP, or a sixth sense, are nothing more than the unconscious manifestations of our existing five senses. Sight, hearing, smell, touch, and taste. The reason the techniques of utilizing these five senses to the degree that would explain away much of the sixth sense, sense nonsense, are not learned is because to do so would mean admitting that animals have something we don't have and they might be able to teach us a few things. Man can't quite bring himself to learn from the animals, although, because he has been brainwashed into thinking that he is something special, a higher type of being. He can't beat his chest and play God, because that's reserved for the guy upstairs. And he can't learn from the animal kingdom, because he is supposedly emancipated from it. If something comes along he can't explain, he asks somebody else, and... If there are still no satisfactory explanations, he looks to his gods for one. If faith in his old gods wanes because of doubts in his mind as to the validity of his religion, he can no longer call strange happenings miracles. But his ego won't allow him to lose what little self-respect he has acquired by regressing to animalism in any way, shape, or form, even if it means he might learn something. So he thinks of a new scientific term which will break away from the religious terminology of miracles that have lately left him so disenchanted. 
He still knows little more than he ever did, but he feels better because he thinks he is on the right track. Not dependent on his old god and not trafficking with the devil, who represents the lower elements of man. In this section, we will consider these lower aspects of our development, the animal awarenesses that have been so badly neglected that we mistakenly call them ESP, or Sixth Sense, or Sympathetic Vibrations. I am not attempting to say that telepathic communication does not exist. It certainly does. It's just that the average person who throws the term ESP around so readily is often confusing it with what one might better call HSP, or Heightened Sensory Perception, which simply means that we receive impressions through our existing five senses that we do not recognize as coming through those agencies. We can't just say we don't like someone because he smells bad if we don't pick up a strong enough odor to consciously recognize it. Nevertheless, we will react to our HSP if we meet someone who has a slight, almost imperceptible sneer on his lips and a look of hostility in his eyes. We might not even, con con we might not even consciously recognize it. But our animal nature, or HSP, relies, uh, relays the message to our brain that this man is no good, based, on, uh, based our judgment on many more factors than we could ever imagine have influenced us. The tone of one's voice as he talks may be in direct contradiction to the emotional acceptance of the person spoken to, or a sound in a room might be of a frequency that will cause anxiety to all present. In this volume, we are concerned with the bewitchments, and that means acceptance or rejection of certain things by another that will allow the witch to attain her goals. The entire mechanism of accepting or rejecting can be controlled if one learns the proper use of HSP. The most effective way to get someone to do what you want is to let them think it is of his own doing. You cannot command people to do what you wish them at all times, but you can set up and arrange sensory cues so they will automatically do your bidding. The following chapters will deal with five senses and how the witch can employ them to her advantage. The pupils of his eyes as a measurement for success. Another of the old tricks of carnal fortune tellers, card sharps, and con men is the ability to read a person's emotional response through his eyes. We all have this ability to a greater or lesser degree, but few recognize it, and even fewer consciously employ it. Dr. Eckhard Hess of the University of Chicago formulated the science of pupillometrics as a result of his researchers into this subject in 1960. Basically, the principle is this. When a person is confronted with something or someone that meets with his approval, the pupils of his eyes will become larger. When the disapproval is registered, the pupils will get smaller. Subtle as the movements are, they can still be ascertained, and it is likely we base much of our approval or disapproval of others upon their eye response to us. When introduced to another person whose pupils suddenly got bigger, it is an unconscious reaction on our part to accept him. If the pupils come up tight upon encountering the same person, we will perceive that something is not quite right with them and be on our guard or downright hostile. There used to be a number of clinches, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there used to be a number of cliches like a real eye opener, give him the eye, a real eyeful, etc. 
and the lore of the evil eye has persisted to this day. The eye as an extension of the brain is verified by the changes in the size of the pupil that occur when others of the senses are stimulated. The old idea of love at first sight is based on the components covered in this book, not the least of which is the response triggered by the appearance of the eyes. If the proverbial green light is given with the eyes, it is a sure sign that the pupils will be noticeably larger than they would normally be. Two people sitting in the darkness of an intimate restaurant looking across the table at each other with only a candle for illumination is a romantic stereotype. Both persons' eyes are reacting to the dim setting, so the pupils expand. Combine this with the romantically ideal light of the flickering candle, and both persons will be thrown into an artificial acceptance of each other, especially if a bottle of wine is added. Fireside sessions at ski lodges also might be mentioned here. Gulami de Salasta, a French poet, referred to the eyes as the windows of the soul. It doesn't take a great deal of eye movement for even the most unaware person to know something is wrong with another when the eyes narrow down. A shifting occurs or gaze becomes erratic. There are actual tests which can be devised that will give you a good idea of where you stand witch-wise with the subject you have chosen for your enchantment. First, if you notice his pupils have enlarged, you know you're on the right track. A good test of what he likes to see in a woman can be conduct, uh, conducted employing a magazine. A scrapbook is actually best, with a different girl pictured on each page. It takes a little sneaky doing for a girl to just happen to have an album of other girls' pictures around without casting doubts as to your sexual intentions, but such a scrapbook can be made up of clippings from magazines ostensibly for the purpose of a homework project, for a makeup or hairstyling class once attended, etc. Have such a portfolio lying where it is sure to be reached for, and where you can observe his reactions from a close vantage point. While he casually thumbs through the book, wait for a change in his pupils. Also, noticing if more time is spent on one picture and remember the one that got the green light. The girl reacted to most will give you some indication of what appeals to him. At least 20 different types should be represented, all wearing clothes. If you use pictures or of news or of nudes or scantily clad girls, his reaction is likely to be based upon something you will be able to readily change. Or if he is very pure, his pupils will be the size of silver dollars with every page he turns. Equally useless will be an array of clothed girls with one or two garbed in outlandish grotesque pupils contract or extremely suggestive pupils enlarge outfits. Alistair Crowley, the English occultist and poet, wrote in his Hymn to Pan, Give me the sign of the open eye, the token erect of thorny thigh. This sign of the open eye served as a mating signal long before man's scholarly concern with such matters, so you might as well utilize it to its fullest. Another trick a witch should know is how to actually make her pupils appear larger, therefore your, uh, motivating your victim into succumbing to your spell. Nearsighted girls are more successful than others at charming with their eyes because of the strain exerted in trying to see without their glasses, which are usually left off when they're trying to make their sexiest impression. Automatically dilates the pupils and gives the appearance of the high sign. Also, because of the difficulty in seeing, the girls must fix their gaze more intently on their subject, adding to the effect of letting the man think she is inviting his attention. If you are not nearsighted, 
but want to enlarge your pupils with a certain degree of control while looking at your victim, here is how. Look directly towards him, as if you were gazing right into his eyes, but instead of focusing your eyes on his, pick a tiny area like the corner of his eye, an eyelash, a pore, and try your hardest to study it intently. This exercise will enlarge your pupils a little extra bit needed to do the trick. On the other hand, if you wish to appear as dominant, ruthless witch, and you can see that your quarry will respond to a whip mistress, you must learn to develop a hard, impassionate look that will leave him trembling with fearsome anticipation. Instead of focusing on a small area, look directly at him, just as though you were gazing directly into his eyes, but don't even look at his eyes or his face either. Pretend he isn't even there. This should be easy. And allow your eyes to pick up all the light and reflections of the entire area in which you stand. Utilizing your peripheral vision, the things you barely pick up at the outermost limits of your vision on either side of your head, the more area you can perceive, the more light attacks the eye, causing the pupils to contract. This will give the effect of looking right through the person, which, in a way, you are. Don't be misled by the old notion that a piercing stare is the only kind that indicates mastery. The only kind of look that denotes such power over others is the one that seems to say, I don't need you nearly as much as you need me. And that is the cold see-through look just described. The come-hither look of the witch that seems to imply just treats must not be confused with a masterful look when the pupil is open full. It conveys the promise of sexual abandon in a woman to the man who is the recipient. It also implies the eager lust of a man towards the woman he looks upon in, his, in this manner. When you confront a man who does not look you in the eye, it usually means he is preoccupied with other things and isn't interested in you. Not that he is too weak to confront your gaze. If you can hold the other person's gaze, even after you have adverted your own, you have him spellbound. Successful witches will choose the most likely candidates in a room and then individually give them the sign of the open eye long enough to whet their respective appetites for the pleasure she seems to promise. When one man is fixed by her gaze, she moves to another. She knows when she has transfixed her victim by the way he keeps looking at her after she has contracted her pupils and subsequently looked away. The mere action of closing down the size of her pupils is like pulling the bait in after the fish is bitten. She gives each man the idea that she wants him simply by the use of her eyes, then reels him in by saying with her special eyes, I don't need you unless you have something special to offer. If he has nothing else, he has himself, and will spend the rest of the evening giving himself away. The face and head look more seductive when turned and tilted in the proper way. A lot in how you position your head depends on the type of man you are bewitching. Bearing in mind the rules you have just learned concerning the size of your pupils, we shall proceed. If you are a dominant type who is bewitching a passive male, the most seductive look must be bold as well. This is best accomplished by placing the front of your face in the direct line with him, so that both sides of your face are equally visible when he looks at you. Your head should be tilted slightly up, so you appear to be ever so slightly looking down on him. Don't try to scowl like Theta Bara and lower your head so you scowl out from under your brows. This just looks weird, not dominant. The only witches who should res <clears throat> resort to the vampire look are those that look like vampires, and that means more bizarre than pretty. 
The vampire look is achieved by slightly slouching the neck and head forward, with the head tilted well downwards and the gaze coming darkly out from the scowling eyebrows. If you wish to maintain your dominant look and you feel you must lower your head, be sure your neck and head are held well back on your shoulders. Then, keeping your neck back, tilt your head downwards. Take care that your neck does not slouch forward. You'll find that your head is not really lowered, so you are looking out from under your brows, but that it's actually almost level. It just seems like it's tilted more than it is because of the neck being held well back on the shoulders. If you are a passive type or playing a passive role, you must use your pupillary action in the same manner previously described, but position your head in a different manner. Remember, you're supposedly, um, you're supposed to be the girl that can't help it, non-aggressive, shy, a bit furtive, yet decidedly naughty. Unlike the other witch who commands her man to her, you must let him think he is taking advantage of you, and there's nothing much you can do about it, <laughs> little does he know. Just as the bold girl will look directly at her quarry, so must you. But your head and face must be aimed in a slightly different direction. Rather than facing him head on, you must turn your head a little bit to one side, slightly tilting it downwards, and then look at him. One side of your face should predominate in a three-quarter view. Your eyes should show plenty of white on one side. This has a connotation of wide-eyed innocence, but the angle of the head adds a saucy quality. If you use any of the old standbys like fluttering your eyelids, battling, batting your lashes, or other melodramatic poses, make damn sure there are no inconsistencies in your basic appearance. There is nothing more ludicrous than a big buxom 11 o'clock witch flapping her eyelashes, whereas a very small girl can sometimes get away with such antics. When confronting your quarry, don't make the mistake of wearing sunglasses, thinking you will appear more intriguing. The reason poker sharks often wear dark glasses or eye shades is usually so other players won't pick up any betraying change in the eyes if an exceptionally good hand should be held. A poker player can often bluff his way through a bum hand by raising his bet, but chances are such a player's pupils will be constricted. Whereas, if the hand was really a good one, the best poker face in the world wouldn't help much if the pupils were dilated from the excitement. In witchery, your eyes are a powerful weapon, so don't muzzle them with sunglasses. Wear sunglasses all you want in the sun, or in cases where you don't want your eyes to betray your true feelings, but take them off when you swing into action. Incidentally, let's not forget that there are men who are turned on by girls wearing glasses, and despite the old saying, they do make passes. The stereotype of the bespeckled intellectual has been criticized many times over by optical firms and optometrists whose business it is to sell glasses. However, some witches can capitalize on an intellectual image and be thankful for their glasses. The typical 9 and 10 o'clock male will automatically be attracted to a cerebral type woman of 3 or 4 o'clock. This type of man usually needs a thinner, even a best friend, even as a best buddy, I fucked that up, sorry. This type of man usually needs a thinker, even as a best buddy, so the pair of glasses you might be wearing could well be a fetishistic asset. One last word about eyes. The fact that the eye is the most flagrant transmitters of sexually motivating situations to the brain can be attested to by the religious and superstitious taboos involving it. No other organ has been so closely linked with the genitals as the eye. If you can read a person's eyes, they are more naked before you 
than if you were to remove their clothes. Whew, sorry guys, I am drying up. Fast. <clears throat> Sweet hell. Alright, the next one is sound. Dude, I don't think I got that in me. <clears throat> Not tonight. Alright, we're going to pick up on sound next time whenever I do it. It's been about a month since I did the last one. I don't know, maybe I'll... Dude, this is... There's no way that's all sound. That's, that's huge. It's a lot. <laughs> Alright, we're stopping there, people. Sorry it's a little short. <clears throat> uh, I had a good time. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining me. Uh, I like getting on here and uh, just riffing, having fun. You know, a little bit of back and forth, a little bit of uh, casual fun. I dig it. Thank you, guys. Um, I'll let you know when I have the next one. Again, don't really know. I uh, got a special uh, gift for all you Nine Cents fans. Thank you to Aden and uh, Witch Zafdig. That's coming out in just a few days. So keep your eyes open for that. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, that's going to do it. So thank you guys again for tuning in, for paying attention, for going through this monstrosity of a <laughs> tongue-tripping novel with me. And until next time, hail Satan. <laughs>